Welcome to the pulse that moves the triangle world today. This one size fits all broadcast is a vibrant collection of stories, medical breakthroughs, helpful tips, what's trending, events, and boundless other adventures. It's a conversation pit of comedians, politicians, authors, chefs, sports figures, experts, the common and the uncommon. Here's the host of Triangle 411, Mary Inspreffer. Hi, friends. It's the orange season. Fall is here, and that means Halloween is here, and that means spooky is here. Of course, spooky is alive and well in every season, even if you don't know it. <laughs> in fact, according to a YouGov survey from last Halloween, 45% of Americans believe in ghosts, 43% believe ghosts can come back to haunt people, and 36% have personally experienced the presence of a spirit. I'm dedicating this show to my sister Janice and my daughter Chelsea, who have been on many paranormal adventures with me, and we all fall in that 36% of the lucky or the unlucky ones who have experienced the presence of a spirit. I'll tell you about those experiences in a minute, but first let me introduce Nelson Noss of the Ghost Guild, a registered nonprofit based in Raleigh that serves as the exclusive paranormal research team for the city of Raleigh's Mordecai Historic Park and Theater in the Park. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So, Nelson, I want to get your take on some of my experiences. Cuba Road and White Cemetery in Illinois are considered some of the most haunted locations in the U.S. Now, right away, I jumped to Roller Coaster, a controlled thrill. You wouldn't necessarily go down the side of a mountain at top speeds in a little tin cart, but if you were at an amusement park, you would because you consider it safe. So from time to time, Chelsea and I would go up to these haunted sites in Illinois, and our safe cart, our car, with all the doors locked, of course, and waited to see if the girl who died in a car crash is still appearing as a willowy figure on the side of Cuba Road. That's what's been documented. We never saw the girl, but something spooky always, always happened on Cuba Road, even if it was just our glove box falling open by itself. What do you think about that? This is very interesting. <laughs> I've never heard of a glove box opening by itself. Um, but yeah, uh, what are some of the other experiences you've had at that location? Well, right off of Cuba Road is White Cemetery. Um, and outside the gates, we would go and see, because there have been, again, all documented research about being one of the ha most haunted places. And we never did see a spirit, but we got one in a photo. And I know some of your investigations, you don't physically see an apparition or different things, but you might pick up an orb or such on a camera, right? Yeah, the, that is actually a very controversial subject because most of those 
but that's actually what we received the most of in our email is uh, people sending us pictures of what they believe to be, you know, a, a paranormal apparition. And a lot of those could easily be, for lack of a better word, discredited um, because most of those are due to either moisture in the air or dust particles or bugs where when you take a picture, the light reflects on those and actually shows up in the picture as, as what you see as, a, as an orb. Um, the ones that are, are more interesting are the ones that you actually see with your own eyes uh, because that means there's a light source to them and it's not because of a flash you know, reflecting on on the surface. Uh, but yeah, the orb that you would see with your own eyes would definitely be something I would be interested in seeing. Um, but yeah, a lot of the pictures you really do have to be careful when you do look at those because of the actually even Kodak itself and its user's guide talks about the circle of confusion as being that just that an orb that shows up on their um, on their pictures taken with their devices because they were getting so many reports of uh, people uh, stating that they had caught something paranormal. Well, I'm going to tell you that I caught something paranormal because it wasn't just a little dot or dust. It was actually almost a full body. And let, let me tell you that story. So in White Cemetery, again, in Illinois, it has some unresting in peace Chicago gangsters, one of which is said to haunt the cemetery. And people have said that they have seen this person um, leaning up against a tree with a fedora, cigar in his mouth, and his body seemed, you know, the top, there was a little gap and then the rest of his body. And the story goes that it was because he was buried inside the cemetery, but through the years, they moved the gate. So now half of his body is inside the cemetery, and half of it is outside, thus the gap. And we actually caught a picture of that, if you can believe it. Interesting. Yeah. That's something I would love to see. <laughs> Yeah, so that sounds like what you would refer to as a like residual haunting. You hear people talking about, yeah, well, I saw this face and it walked through the wall. <laughs> when, you know, if you look back on the historical records of that location, you might identify that there used to be a door there. And what you're seeing is basically a residual uh, haunting, something that is replaying itself and it is walking through what was once a door, but the door is no longer there. Um, so yeah, so that, that is, that is definitely an interesting catcher. I would love to see that. Janice, my sister, like my mom has a sixth sense and sees spirits like a lady standing at the end of her bed and her kids have seen the spirit of a little boy. Their experiences included waking up to this spirit face to face, <laughs> creepy, or <laughs> when they're playing in the basement, seeing a skateboard roll across the the basement floor back and forth, of course, with no one on it, as if the little boy wanted to play with them. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think some people have this sixth sense and are more in tune? It certainly seems that way. You know, you hear a lot of people talking about kids, for example, um, being more in tune. And I've got a story that I'll share with you later about that. But um, it, it definitely does seem like some people have 
this ability that others do not or have not lost that ability if you believe children have that. Um, but it's, it's one of those that would be, it would almost have to be like a personal experience because you can't prove that, you know, with science, at least not yet. <laughs> but it is definitely something that I find interesting that, uh, I've always wondered how do people see these things? Is it like clear as day? Is it in their mind? You know, what, how, how do they visualize this apparition, um, that they're seeing? And I've, I've always found that fascinating. So I do want to hear some of your stories, and I do want to get back to Mordecai at the end of the show to talk about the happenings there for Halloween 2020. But let's start with some of your other investigations. Uh, maybe begin with Waverly Hills in Kentucky. Yeah. So uh, actually, Waverly Hills is thought by many to be the most haunted place in America. And it's actually a site to be seen. I don't know if you've seen a picture of this place, but it is massive. It's Gothic style. And, uh, it actually accommodates about 400 patients. And the, uh, location opened in 1926. It operated until 1961. And then it reopened as Woodhaven Medical Services. So it was basically a geriatric facility. And that was closed uh, by the state in 1981 because of overcrowding and reports of patient neglect. So it operated as a tuberculosis uh, hospital. And the number of deaths while operating uh, very greatly. I've read anywhere between 10,000 to as high as 63,000. But based on the actual death certificates, the number is believed to be more around 6,000, which is still a significant number of deaths in one location. And that is not counting the deaths of when it operated as a nursing home. Now, um, in terms of what could potentially be causing the location to be haunted, is not just the deaths, it's just when you think about the treatments that were performed there. Some of them were actually gruesome uh, they would surgically implant balloons into the lungs of patients and then fill them with air in order to expand their lungs. Uh, the last resort procedure sometimes involved removing muscles and ribs from the patient's chest so that their lungs could expand further and let in more oxygen. So um, it, it's, it's pretty, to be in there and to know all these things happened is, is a surreal experience. But one of the most famous parts of the building is, no, is known as the tunnel, but also actually more famously known as the body shoes. It's a 500-foot corridor that goes from the first floor to the bottom of the hill. And the way that it's set up is that on one side, there's a set of stairs. And those are the stairs that the employees would use to go up to work, especially in winter, when there was a lot of snow on the ground and it was, you know, a treacherous hill to get up. So they would use the tunnel to go up um, to work. And then the other side had um, a railing system. It was a cable system with a rail that would basically be used to move things up or down, so supplies, for example. But the thing is, is that when the peak epidemic reached the new heights, the tunnel started being used to dispose of the bodies. Uh, the reason why is that the doctors who were treating the patients believed that the patient's mental health was just as important as their physical health, and they didn't want patients to see how many uh, you know, other patients were dying. 
So in this particular case, when we investigated, we've been there twice now. And when we investigated, walked into the body shooter, the tunnel area, immediately upon walking in, we could hear with our own ears. Like, this is not through a recorder. This is audible. You hear this cart making its way, or it sounds like a cart making its way up the chute towards us. And it sounded like metal to metal rolling slowly up the hill. And this is something that's been reported by many. We are not the first to hear this. And we have a recording of this, and it is available on our YouTube channel. But, yeah, you hear this mechanical metal-on-metal wheels rolling up towards us. So what was that? I don't know. We certainly looked at all other possible explanations, even the morning after we walked outside up and down the chute to see if we could identify anything that could have made that sound and we could not. So that was that was surreal. It was <laughs> just to hear that was was lack of a better word, awesome. Yeah, I'll um, bet. I'll bet. And then, uh, another thing we had happen while we were at Waverly was uh, we actually wake up in teams. We had a team that had three people on it, two guys and one girl. And they were walking in these large breezeways. Um, they, this is how the, the location was built so they could wheel out all the patients you know, onto the balcony so they could get the fresh air that they so, you know, needed or believed that they needed for their tuberculosis treatment. But they were walking, again, two guys, one girl, and all of a sudden, in the background, you hear this voice that sounds a little odd, but you hear a voice that calls out, Heidi. Mm. And no one heard this at the time. But what's interesting is that the girl that I was on that team, her name was Heidi. And none of the, I mean, there was only two guys with her, and this was a woman's voice. And it was not herself calling. I mean, it does not sound like her. So that was that was an interesting capture or EVP as we refer to them, where you don't hear it with your own ears, but you record it on your device. Very interesting. Now, West Virginia has a couple places of note. Uh, let's start with the asylum there. Ah, yes, the Trans Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Uh, that location was one of uh, seventy-three Kirkbride uh, psychiatric hospitals in the United States. Uh, this particular one operated from 1864 until 1994. Now, uh, the Kirkbride hospitals were based on the foundation that was established by Dorothea Dix, who sought basically to correct people's misconceptions about men- mental illness. And um, she basically uh, wanted to make sure that people understood that mental illness was not an irreversible condition, uh, best treated in darkness or with force or physical restraint. So these were large locations, uh, open areas. Uh, so it was very different than what you know the typical treatment had been for medical uh, or for um, for mental health treatment. So um, now that's all said and good. The intent was great, uh, but the thing is, is it was designed to hold 250 people, but it became overcrowded in the 1950s with you ready 2,600 patients. Mm. So designed for 250, oh my and goodness. it was overcrowded by 2,600. Oh my goodness! 
So, so similar to what we talked about with Waverly and some of the things that had been done there, uh, the asylum in this case became training ground for experimental lobotomies. Uh, so, in the course of uh, its lifetime, uh, actually Walter Freeman, who was known for popularizing and performing like 4,000 lobotomies, uh, left perfectly healthy patients with lasting physical cognitive damage, and for many of them, uh, it resulted in death. So wh- one of one of the experiences that we had there, walking on the fourth floor, and everyone else in our group was down the first floor in what we call our home base, which is where we meet up you know, at, at between segments of our investigations. So it was myself and Nick, and we're on the fourth floor, and we stop when all of a sudden we hear on the fifth floor this blood-curdling scream as if someone was in complete pain and agony, and there was no one else up there. And that is something that's been reported by many, so we were not the first to hear this. And unfortunately, we had the recording going, but you don't hear it as well on the recording that we did uh, with our own ears. And the other thing, which is probably the more creepy one, which we were just talking about children having um, some senses. Um, so I have a six-year-old daughter, and, you know, whenever I go on these investigations, she thinks I'm going to look for Daddy Boo because she's got a little stuffed animal, and <laughs> it's a ghost, <laughs> and she thinks I'm looking for, you know, his daddy. So um, I had... One of the one of the um, one of the rooms in Trans Allegheny Lunatic Asylum is believed to be haunted by a, a little girl named Lily. And what we typically do on investigations is we try we try to communicate with you know whatever whoever is there. We try to be personal. We try to have a conversation that is not just about asking questions, but also sharing about ourselves. You know. You wouldn't want to talk to someone that just goes up to you at a grocery store and asks you a bunch of questions. <laughs> um, if someone shares with you, well, hey, I did this. You know, what about you? What did you do? This is kind of what we try to do. So since here, you know, we'd heard that there was a little girl, I started sharing stories about my daughter. And I, I shared, you know, her name. I shared some of the stuff that she likes to do. Um, and this kind of trying to see if I could get some, some kind of a reaction. And I didn't think more about that. I mean, we just continued on our investigation. It wasn't until several days after I came back from West Virginia that my daughter started waking up and, in essence, having, like, <laughs> what we thought at first was just nightmares. And she wouldn't open up about them. She was obviously very scared, but she she wouldn't say what was going on, and it took several days of this happening to finally have her start opening up and saying that, you know, there was a girl. There was a girl in her room. And so I'm like, okay, all right, there's a girl in your room, but she wouldn't say much more about that. So very afraid. And as I continued asking those questions, I eventually asked, well, does this girl have a name? And she nodded yes. And I said, okay, well, what's her name? And she said, Illy. Mm -hmm. Which, mm-hmm. at that point, I'm like, wait a minute, Lily, Lily, mm-hmm. <laughs> did I invite Lily to come and meet my daughter when I was talking about my daughter? Did you, her? did you? 
I didn't. At least I don't think I did. I normally be pretty explicit that you don't follow me home. But uh, in this particular case, I what I I basically I went back up there the next day and I just I was like, hey, really, if you're here. Um, I, I didn't invite you to come here. You know, I, I was like, you know, you need to go back to where you came from. I, of course, I saged the room. <laughs> um, but there's been nothing else that has happened since then, which is another thing I find interesting. It's like all of a sudden it stopped. And, well, that kind of you know, happened for- with my sister, too, when I said she saw the lady at the end of her bed. This, uh, this spirit was first haunting her daughter. And it's to the point where, you know, her daughter was getting, um, you know, somewhat hysterical about seeing this ghost every night. And of course, Janice being the great mom she is, said, you know, stop, stop that, leave her alone, come to me instead of her. And that's how she landed up seeing this lady at the end of her bed. Um, pretty brave mom. I don't know if I would have done that for my kids to invite a spirit. I'm not that great of a mom. But anyway, so so we have maybe, I'm going to say, if you can do it fast enough, maybe maybe three minutes to talk about Brunswick Heritage Museum. Sure. So, yeah, so uh, Brunswick uh, Heritage Museum is in Brunswick, Maryland, and it actually pays homage to the town that um, that was once the world's largest rail yard. It's located in a building that dates back to uh, 1904. And interesting about it is that it once housed the Improved Order of Red Men, which is a drinking society whose uh, origins trace back to the secret patriotic societies before the American Revolution. Later, it was a another secret society that used it, it um, called the Fraternal Order of Eagles. And then at one time, the third floor was used as a speakeasy. So there's a lot of interesting history there. Uh, the museum itself was established in 1980, and it's actually really two museums in one. So on the second floor, the museum exhibits, um, they basically tell the, the stories of the town that was built by the railroad. And it includes generally your normal memorabilia and your antiques. But it also has other pieces, such as a baby's casket, and a mm. wicker body carrier. So mm. there's a lot of accidents that happen around the railroads. So they would use this carrier to <sighs> carry the, the victims that had died from their, uh, the accidents. And then the third floor is a huge scale model of the DNO Railroad uh, that starts from the Brunswick Royal Yard all the way to Washington, D.C. But some of the reported activities there uh, include a lady in white, in a white dress, actually, which a lot of places seem to have that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then footsteps, the voices, and then the uh, speakeasy buzzer is still up there. And it apparently sometimes activates itself. Mm-hmm. And they can't explain that. Mm-hmm. But um, we've been there twice. And the area that seems to be the most active for us was the actual staircase. And what was interesting is that I just felt a connection there, and I sat in the middle of the staircase after I'd heard a knock, um, which could have been anything. But I just I sat there and said, hey, is it you that made that sound? And then all of a sudden, it's right in my face, this loud hiss that scared the bejesus out of me. Um, and, and what was interesting is that exact same night, a team member had the exact same experience in that staircase. 
And so then I, I followed up in there. I, I went back and I started asking questions as I was recording. I said, hey, it sounded like a hiss. Was that you? And then you hear this faint voice in the background that says, help me. Oh, jeez. And, and then again, later that night, I didn't realize that at the time until I watched it, but later that night, I was again in that area recording, and I said, hey, is there anybody here? And then you wait a few seconds, and then you hear something or someone say, um, right here. Oh, jeez. So that area. <laughs> You're kidding. This is goosebump time now. <laughs> The area, this is very interesting uh, for, for that particular museum, but it, it's an interesting place. I mean, it's not well known as a haunted location, but you know, hopefully that will change because we certainly have some interesting things there. Well, I could sit and listen to this all day long, but we're kind of out of time, and I do want to go back to Mordecai to have you give us a preview of the event there for Halloween. Yeah, so we're really excited to be doing this. There was talk about potentially canceling the festival this year. Uh, we didn't actually get to investigate Mordecai because the park was closed. Um, and normally at the end, uh, the last weekend of every October, we present our findings from our last three or four investigations. So we had nothing new to present this year. So we're like, well, what can we do that would be different that has not been done before? And now we've done live streams before, but we've never done anything at this scale. So what we're going to be doing Halloween night for anyone that's looking for something to do, um, we will be live streaming several things. Uh, we will start with a history of the park, and then um, we will go into the legend of, um, of the park, and then some of the data we've previously captured. And then we will go into a live stream of a location. And we'll be, we'll be doing five different segments, each one focusing on a different building at the park. So the Mordecai House, Andrew Johnson's birthplace, St. Mark's Chapel, just to name a few. So it's, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. We're looking forward to it. I will give everyone an opportunity to see how, you know, we conduct our investigations. And, uh, yeah, so we hope that, you know, a lot of people will join us for that. And I understand participants will have the opportunity to win the chance to join the Ghost Guild on one of their future investigations of Mordecai. Yeah, that is a drawing that we do every year when we do our presentation normally. So we'll be incorporating that same prize into this. And in addition to that, there will be some other prizes uh, that we'll be giving out uh, for people that join us that night. So can you give a site with information where people should go to register, et cetera? Yep. So it is a free event. There is no registration needed. The event is listed on Facebook, so they could certainly go there and mark themselves as interested or going, so they'll receive updates. Uh, other than that, we have our website, which is theghostguilds.com, and the information about the live stream will be posted there as soon as that is all finalized. But we're scheduled to start at about 7 o'clock and uh, should go through about 11 that night. Cool. Well, you know, we always feature a nonprofit spotlight at the end of every show. But just before I go into that segment, give me your best spooky laugh. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Thanks so much, Nelson. No problem. It's a pleasure. Happy haunting. Well, that was a lot of fun. And now for our nonprofit spotlight, we're talking to Adam Schwab of Zach's 
toy chest, a 501c3 based in Holly Springs. Welcome, Adam. Thank you, Mary. Thanks for having me. So tell us how Zach's toy chest got started. Well, we started uh, in, in uh, 2008 after our our son, Zachary, had uh, a cancer um, in, his, in his abdominal area, and we decided to uh, do something. He is now healed. Um, he's 12 years cancer-free, and we, we decided to do something to give back to the hospitals. And with doing that, we decided to do a toy drive and give, uh, give these, the children's hospitals toys. So what hospitals do you visit? Um, we do, our main hospital was Duke's Children's Hospital. That's where Zachary was treated. But as, uh, as the years have gone on, um, we, we, we found a void in, in doing this with kids giving back toys and stuff to the hospitals. Um, we, we, we continue to do this. We are now doing 11, we're on our 11th year of Zach's Toy Chest. We donate to Duke, UNC, Wake Med, James and Connie Maynard, and we do, and we also do the Outer Banks. We go to the Outer Banks. So how many toys would you say you've donated over those years? So over the past 11 years that we've been doing this, we've gotten over 100,000 um, toys to date. Wow, that is amazing and great. Um, so Zach, he's, uh, thank God he's, he's well now. And I suppose he sometimes goes out and distributes the toys. And I just wonder what that's like for him, you know, knowing at one point he was in that hospital bed and now he's kind of come around and giving back by taking toys to other children that are in hospital beds. Zach was uh, growing up, and when we were first starting out, a lot of the toys were were staged in our in our house, and when we lived in an apartment, and every time more more donations would come in, he would see action figures and stuff like that, and he would he would see all these toys. But the one thing that he thought whenever whenever we told him that it was going to the hospital, he never once did he want to ask to have it or open it. He he knew that going to the hospital was a good thing for, for these kids to keep their minds off of what is going on at the hospital. So he did a, he, he, he loved that. He also loves taking toys when they get donated or dropped off on our porch. He'll take them to the barn. We have a toy barn now as we grew and they go and get put on the shelf and he likes loading up the toys in, in the toy hauler. We got a toy hauler that we take to the hospitals and he'll, He'll load up the toy hauler and come over and we'll we'll have a one big unload day where we stock the hospitals full of toys. Wow, it sounds like you've got quite an operation going there. Probably not when you thought when it started. It was just meant to be a singular toy drive, and now you've got a toy barn, et cetera. And I understand your organization is 100% volunteer-based, which is interesting, too. Tell us about an experience of someone who went and delivered the toy to the children. So some of the experiences that we get, like I, like you said, that we are 100% volunteer-based. 
Um, toys get separated, they get inventoried, they get put in boxes of, of, uh, of girl toys and boy toys and, and all different. They get sorted. We have like sports, um, basketball, soccer ball, stuff like that. And, um, some of the experiences, uh, when, whenever we do take the toys to the hospital, very rarely do we get to go and experience handing these toys out to the kids themselves because of uh, like HIPAA, HIPAA rules and stuff. Uh, a lot of the families, we can't interact unless, you know, a lot of um, paperwork signed. But there are some rare uh, experiences that we do get to go through. And, and one time we did get to go up into UNC and pass out toys to kids that were in the waiting rooms. And um, some, some of the kids that are sitting there, for eight hour long days waiting to get their, their cancer treatments in the waiting room. They don't have a lot of stuff there to pass the time away. So when we did get to go up in there and, and pass out toys to them, they, it's like, Oh, is this for me? Yes, this is for you. And you know, action figures, Legos to pass time. And it's like something they, they were like, what? And they didn't understand like, we, we could take these. Yeah, this Aww. is yours to keep and take it home. You sure do need something to occupy you during chemo. So for these poor kids, yeah, so it's good that you're helping. Now, the effects of COVID-19, you know, it, it has slithered into all areas of life, including the nonprofit sector. I know Zach's toy chest needs a lot of help. You know, a lot of the donations and so forth for nonprofits is way down. So what can people do to help, especially with the upcoming holiday season? So our upcoming, uh, during the holidays is usually our big time of the of the year when it, we get a lot of donations coming. We have donation stations uh, located throughout Holly Springs where Anybody can drop off toys at our drop off locations. Um, um, there's all kinds of like you can go there to drop off toys, and then when their toy uh, box gets filled up, they give us a call, and usually I'll be the one that goes out there and picks up the toys and brings them back to the toy barn, and then we go through a couple church groups comes in and we separate out those toys to help us out. Um, but anybody can donate. They can go on our website. Um, there's a um, zaxtoychest.org, and you can look up any donation station. But any new unwrapped toy has to be a new toy, though. Okay, great. Well, thank you for the work you're doing and the difference you're making. And um, I hope folks will be generous, very generous. Thank you so much, yeah. Adam. I appreciate it, Mary. Thank you very much. Well, it's time to high-five and say goodbye. After a rigorous review, Triangle 411 has been accepted to Amazon Music in Pandora. You can listen there or on any major platform, including Apple, iHeartRadio, and Google, to hear stories on death cafes, space, the environment, and even a drive-in movie church. I'm Mary Innsbrucker for Triangle 411. Our close today is courtesy of my sister, Janice Rizudic. Today, dot, 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 always be brave enough to fly even when your glitter weighs you down.